Let me set the scene again then for what we're thinking about on a Sunday evening. And uh, we began with Elijah, and uh, we saw that Elijah met a widow, and uh, he met the widow at a critical moment for her. And then the story continues how her son died, and Elijah raised the son. And then we met Elisha. Elisha requested a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And so that one story of Elijah is separated into two. So for Elijah, it was the widow and her son. And the one story tells us about her shortage and the death of her son. Now in Elisha, it becomes two stories. So there is the widow and her shortage. And then it is a different woman and her son. And so in that story of Elijah being separated into two, we see how Elisha has a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. So we've been looking at this widow in Elisha's story. We've seen that she may well be the widow of Obadiah, who was the prime minister of Israel when Ahab was king. We have seen that her husband got into debt by supporting, if he was indeed Obadiah, by supporting the prophets. You remember that the king and his wife had turned against God and systematically sought to destroy God's prophets. Obadiah then shelters two groups of prophets, 50 a group in the caves, and gets into debt by feeding them through this terrible famine. Obadiah's dead. This widow is left with her two boys. She is left with the debt of her husband. And uh, she's just probably been visited by the creditor uh, who loaned the money. And he has given her this ultimatum. Either she pays him back or he will take her two sons to be his slaves so they will be as good as dead and this widow then will be left on her own now we are looking at this widow because she is an example to us first of all of God and God's concern for his people when his people are in crisis she is also an example to us of how to see God and how to put before God your concerns. And last Sunday, we saw that just like Elijah, she comes before God in the way that uh, uh, the writers of our Bible would have us do. So here's a test for you. We discussed this in prayer meeting last Monday. Do you remember the pattern that this widow shows us? It's the same pattern that Elijah shows us when he speaks to God on the mountain uh, in that very dramatic scene. Look at the first verse. What this widow does is the first thing is she lays the situation out before God. Now, since last Monday, I've been seeking to do this in my own praise. And it's a great challenge, I think 
to come to God and simply tell him what the situation is. For some reason, we get very complicated in our praying. And uh, I think last Monday we had a, a very good conversation again about not mixing ourselves up in our heads with our doctrines. So she starts out then by simply laying out the situation. Her husband is dead. The creditor is at the door. She's nothing to pay. And she's losing her two sons. Then she reminds God, through Elisha, of the past. Now, this is hugely significant. She says to Elisha that, My servant, your husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. Now, in our praying, we remind God of the years that we have served him and prayed to him and worked for him, and feared him, and worshipped him. It's what Elijah does when he speaks to God on the mountain. So you begin by laying out the situation, then you remind God of the years in which you've served him, and then you tell him what the future will be. You lay out for God the thing that you fear the most. And we've seen both Elijah and the widow do exactly that. Elijah says, the future is that woman Jezebel. She will seek me down and she will kill me. That's my future, says Elijah to God. And here's the widow doing the same. She's saying, the future is my sons will be slain. And then, having laid out her future fear, she stops. There's no request. Elijah doesn't make a request. You simply see the two of them laying out the situation, looking back, and then looking forward to say what the future will be. Now, since last week, I've been thinking again about this widow. And I've been trying to marry up the widow with our experience as a congregation. I think the duty of any minister is to encourage the people to pray. And I'm trying to encourage you to pray. I want you to pray as we see here in the widow's experience. Tell God the situation as it is for you. Tell God how for years you have feared him and prayed and worked and served. Tell God. And then tell God what you fear. What's that fear in your heart? That should things continue... If things carry on as they are, what are you afraid will happen? Now, I want to encourage you to pray in this way. And I want to encourage you to pray like this every day because there are some situations for you to bring to God that nobody else should ever hear. 
There are some situations you need to bring to God that only concern you and your family. There are other situations that we are to bring to God that concern us all as a church. And I want you to bring these situations to God day by day in the way that we see here. I want you to do so as a company of people when we meet to pray. We need to be doing this together. And we need to be following the example of Elijah and the widow. But what I've seen this week is that we also have another problem. I think we have a problem in praying, but I think at a deeper level, we also have a problem with God. Because I wonder how many of us would say, we are willing to pray, we are willing even to come on a Monday to pray, but is God willing to answer our prayers? And I'm increasingly wondering whether that's the problem. We have lost a hope that God will answer our prayers. And so we've no problem in bringing our praise to God. But there's this dark shadow in our hearts in which we really don't think that God will answer our praise. Now, you may disagree with me, and I hope you do. But I think that for many of us, this is what the problem is. We wouldn't admit it to anyone else. We can scarcely admit it to ourselves. But what we do instead, I think we do two things. First of all, we look around and we say, well, he's not answered us yet. How many years have I been praying? How many years have I asked him to save this person in my family? As long as I've been a Christian, I have prayed for my husband and I've prayed for my child and nothing, nothing over all these years, there is no evidence that God has answered my prayer. And I think for some of us, what we do is this. We look around and it seems to us that any evidence there is suggests the opposite of our praise. That we almost feel things are getting worse rather than any sign that God may be working in the life of that person I love, any sign that God may be adding to his church. Instead of that, what I'm seeing is it's all getting much worse. So where is God and his answers to our praise? So I think on the one hand, this is what's going on. And it may be, can I suggest it? It may be that this is why some of you have stopped coming to prayer meeting. Because it's the same thing week after week. 
and we are bringing the same concerns to God and we are asking him to do the same things and nothing suggests that God is hearing us. And so we are having a problem not with praying but with our belief that God is hearing and will answer. Now that's the one thing I think is going on. And then the second is linked to what I said to you last Sunday night. And let's go back to a week Monday in prayer meeting. I said to you that we are learning our doctrines, aren't we? My job, I think, is a teacher. I'm teaching you what the Bible tells us. So we are learning our doctrines. Do you remember what I said to you? You must use your doctrines as they are meant to be used. So there are some doctrines that encourage you to pray. And so you focus on them and you use them to encourage you to pray. And there are other doctrines that you leave out of your prayers because they are not designed to help you to pray, they have other purposes. Now, this is so important for us to understand, and it's so important for it to get through into our hearts. There are doctrines that are designed to comfort us. They are not the doctrines we turn to for prayer. We need to see what the Bible says about prayer and use that to encourage us to pray. Now, in exactly the same way, then, we've got doctrines about God. And when we, it comes to the question, does God answer prayer? We look for the doctrines that teach us that he does. We don't turn to doctrines that tells us other things about God. Because the other doctrines of God are there to comfort us in our situations. So can you see what I'm asking you to do? And I want you to think very hard about this. Don't just forget a sermon and carry on like you've always done. There are certain doctrines of God that you think about if you need to be forgiven, if you need to be strengthened, if you need to be encouraged, if you need to be comforted. And then there are doctrines you turn to if you want to be sure that God hears and answers praise. And we turn to them. We don't turn to other doctrines of God. Because we'll end up convincing ourselves that it's okay if he doesn't hear us. We must use our knowledge for the purpose it's designed. So what I want you to do is I want you to see that our Bible teaches us that we have a God whom we can expect to hear our prayers and to answer them. 
And those are the doctrines we use when we want to encourage ourselves not only to pray, but to believe. So will you start with that finger in Exodus chapter 3? And uh, these verses in this chapter are amongst the most important in the whole of our Bibles. And there's so much in chapter 3 that I want to, uh, if I had time, show you and share with you. But I want to look at two verses particularly. So turn to Exodus 3 then. And uh, we begin with this revelation of God through the burning bush. I am that I am. And then as Moses draws near, he has this second revelation of God. Verse 6. Moreover, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's a wonderful revelation of God. It was so important in the ministry of Jesus. He would again and again remind his listeners that their God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the fundamental truth here is that we have a God who does not change. He is the living God. He's not some relic in a museum. God is not someone who belongs to the 18th century. We do not put God in some category in which we think of him as different now compared to the God we read of in our history books. We have the same God. So the same God who turns society upside down, the same God who filled this building you and I are now in, the same God who heard the prayers of two elderly women in a prayer meeting over a hundred years ago is the same God you and I are praying to. He is the living God. The God who continues to be the God of his people in every generation. He has not changed. He is not weak. He isn't old. He hasn't forgotten. He is the same God that you and I worship. The God who has done these great and miraculous works through all the centuries. The God who can work by many or the God who can work by few. The God who has listened and answered and responded. This is the God that we meet together to pray to on a Monday who has shared his people and responded to their praise. We have a living God, the same God. And then look at the next verse I want you to notice, and it's verse 9. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen their oppression with which the Egyptians 
oppress them. And you could read the verse before or the verse after in the same way. See, this God has seen and heard the cries of his people in Egypt. And there's three stages to it. You have the idea of a God seeing. Then you have the idea of a God feeling. And then final step is the God who acts and responds to his people. And this verse in Exodus 3 is another one of these foundational verses. It lays down for us our understanding of who God is in relation to the cries of his people. At the end of Exodus 2, you get those wonderful verses there, right at the end of the chapter from verse 23, that summarize the suffering of uh, the Israelites in Egypt. And then you got this sense that God sees it. And he sees the oppression. He sees his people uh, as they build the pyramids, as their backs are whipped by their taskmasters. And uh, you get the picture mirrored in the experience of Moses. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, and uh, you've got Moses born, and then from verse 11, you've got Moses going out into the land to see the oppression of these his fellow Israelites. And so Moses walks amongst the slaves, and he sees what the Egyptians are doing to them. Now, that's exactly the idea in chapter 3 when God speaks to Moses. I have seen, I have walked amongst, I have noticed. This is the God you and I are praying to. Now, can I say to you, God sees your situation. He sees what is going on for you. God has that first-hand knowledge of every aspect of your experience he sees and you and I need to encourage ourselves to expect God to answer us because he sees the situation that we are in he sees exactly what it's like for you for what it's like for you in your home what it's like for your children and your grandchildren God sees exactly what it's like for us as a congregation. So let's encourage ourselves with this thought that God sees. It's not just visual. None of the, the uh, senses in the Old Testament are just physical. If you talk about God seeing or hearing, it's much more than that. It's intimate knowledge of his people so God sees and then what I want you to do I know it's not ideal I want you to turn across to Luke and chapter 7 for the second thing I want you to notice so here's Jesus then in the city of Nain and uh, he sees this woman uh, uh, and the funeral 
that we have described for us. So look at verse 13. And you, can you see exactly the same now? We are being told. Now the Lord saw her. So just like God saw the Israelites, here is the Lord, and Luke deliberately uses the word Lord at that point. He doesn't say Jesus. He says Lord. Think about why that is. The Lord saw her. And then you see the second thing. He had compassion on her. Now, when you pray, God sees you. And then God has compassion on you. And the word compassion is the most amazing word. It means that God feels with you. He doesn't feel for you. He feels with you. So whatever you feel when you pray, and uh, on Monday David was telling us that we need to feel that sense of urgency in our praying. What you feel, God shares in that with you as you pray. So if you're praying for a loved one to be saved, and you're feeling it. You're feeling this fear that in the future, should she die, she'd be without Christ. And you're feeling it in your heart. Then God feels with you as you pray to him. He is sharing with you in the concern that is moving you to pray. God's heart is joined to your heart in your praise when you come to him as his people. If you're praying for yourself and you're feeling your own need, you're feeling the strain or the loneliness or the darkness of your own situation, and you said to God, you said, God, I'm at my limits. God feels that with you and shares in it with you. That's what compassion means. It's a strength of feeling in the heart of God as he sees our distress and he sees our need. And he sees the situation we're in. It's what he feels for us. So as you and I pray for our church, we have a God who sees. We have a God who feels. He feels with us in our concerns. As we are praying for, uh, the, for God to bless us and add to us, God feels with us. And shares with us what's in our hearts as we pray. Now, of course, both for Moses and for Elijah and for the widow, the final thing I want you to know is that God acts. God sees and feels and acts. Now, if you look at Moses... God's answer to their cry 
was to send Moses to them. And yes, of course, there's gaps, there's 40 years between Israel crying and God acting. And then when God sends Moses, things get worse before they get better. But nonetheless, Moses is God's answer to the cries of the Israelites. God acts. And then when it comes to Elijah, the answer to Elijah's cry is that God sends the whirlwind and takes him up into heaven. And for the widow, uh, the, the answer of God is this flowing of the oil for as long as she has vessels to contain it. Can I say two things as we close? The first is the most obvious one. In Luke 7, this widow doesn't cry. She doesn't ask. And the reason why she doesn't is that she doesn't expect. But nonetheless, the Lord sees and feels and acts. Now, if we've got a God who can answer even when we don't pray, how much more encouragement is there to expect a God to answer us when we do? This is the, the point of Luke 7. Jesus is greater than Elisha and Elijah. You read those two prophets, you come to Christ, you see how greater he is, that he can hear and feel and act even when no one expects. And then when you come back to the widow, I want to say more about this next time. What the, what's remarkable about the widow's story is she hasn't got a specific request. She lays the situation out, reminds Elijah of the past, tells him what she's afraid of in the future, and then stops. And part of the mystery of praying is you lay the situation out, remind God of the past, tell him what your future fear is, and then leave it with him. This woman would not have expected the answer she got from Elisha. And we'll say more of that next time. Let's turn to 